James 4, 1 to 12, quarrels and conflicts. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Amen. The Apostle James, he continues to unpack and explain to us what it means to have the true wisdom of God and what it means to live a godly life based on that true wisdom of God. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, he addresses head-on the problem, the constant problem that churches face, local churches face, and that is quarrels and conflicts. This is always going to be the case because of sinful men. This will always be the case to one degree or another because of the flesh. And until the day of Christ, this will always be the case. We have to be ready for it. But being ready for it also entails knowing how to address it. The Apostle James, in this chapter, verses 1 to 12, he addresses it head on. He doesn't mince any words, he expresses it forthrightly, what's actually happening and what actually should be done to resolve it. So he goes in chapter 4, verse 1, to the source. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? What is the source? He asks the question, not because he doesn't have the answer. Of course he's got the answer and he's about to explain but he wants us to be prodded and goaded into thinking about the cause, the reason, what's actually behind all of these conflicts. And he says, the answer is not the source, your pleasures that wage war in your members. Your pleasures that wage war in your members. You have pleasures, you have sinful desires. You want to do certain things 
You want to believe certain ways. You want to do certain things in order for you to get your way. And when you do that, you are waging war. You're waging war with each other. Because the moment you have a desire, an impulsive, obsessive desire for a pleasure that is going to breach your relationship to another, it's going to cause warfare. It's going to cause conflict. This is the reason. The source is within us. The source is not outside. Right. The main problem is inside, not outside. That's why he's saying that it is that that which is in you, that which you desire, your pleasures, which come from the heart. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Correct? Speaks of that which is within the heart. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, and so forth. This is what the Lord taught, Matthew 15, 19 and 20. So this is where it starts. So we have to ask, what's going on inside of us that's making us say whatever, making us do whatever? Look within us first to seek what that is. Verse, verse 2, well, well, in chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, he says one of the things that is the reason. 2.1 My brethren, do not hold your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. There is one reason why there is conflict or quarrels among us. Because of personal favoritism. Then he explains the difference between the rich and the poor. How the rich are treated in the church compared to how the poor are treated in verses 2 to 7. Personal favoritism. That will be a sinful pleasure, a sinful desire that leads to quarrels and conflicts. Verse 2. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. He says we lust. You lust and do not have. Lust usually in the Bible is a sinful evil desire, whether that be sexual or something else. It could even be coveting someone else's property. It could be other things. Whatever is a strong desire that's evil is here called lust. He says here, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. In this case, the lusting has resulted in murder. One might wonder, is he speaking of mental murder? Or is he speaking of actual violence and physical murder? What does he mean? Well, I think he means both. He certainly has addressed the mental murder in chapter 1, verse 20. He says, The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The anger of man. And then the hatred. Love of the rich in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, but hatred of the poor. That's also, in a sense, the mental murder. And when we speak of that, we're talking about it in terms of the way Christ did in Matthew 5, 21 to 26. In Matthew 5, 21 to 26, he spoke of it in terms of the internal component of what murder is. When we have hatred or anger unjustly toward a brother, then that is in the Bible called murder. Murder starts from within. And James means that 
the Lord Jesus meant it in Matthew 5, 21 to 26. But also, James means it in the physical way, in the violent way, because in chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 6, here too, he criticizes and rebukes the rich for their mistreatment of the poor. And he says in chapter 5, verse 6, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. That is the terminology, that's the language of actual murder, physical murder. And if we are uh, surprised that the Bible would speak about that in the local church, then we haven't been paying attention to what actually happens in local churches. There are people in local churches who have no qualms on murdering somebody else, whether somebody in the local church or somebody outside, because of all of their um, evil deeds on the outside. They do murder. Many of the murderers who are known and convicted murderers, they claim to have been Christians before they murdered, while they murdered, and after they murdered, without any repentance. They claim to be Christians. So James is certainly addressing that aspect as well. And how does it start? It starts with the sinful, evil desire that is uncontrolled, unrepented, and then it leads to murder. Verse 2 further, And you are envious and cannot obtain... So you fight and quarrel. Envious. Envious of what others possess. Envious or covetous of what others own. And because you are envious and you cannot obtain it, that is, you don't have the resources, you don't have the money or whatever to obtain it, then fighting and quarreling take place. Why is it that you have it? Why don't you share what you have? I would like some of that too. Can I borrow it? And then after borrow, I'll borrow it for a week. And then a month goes by and a year goes by. And then the owner says, well, where is that item I let you borrow? And then there's a conflict. There's a, quarrel, a quarreling or fighting going on. Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male slave or his female slave or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. A few examples. But then he says, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Whatever it might be that you are coveting, you are envious that he owns it, but you don't. He's using it, but you can't use it. You want, he's enjoying the use of it, but you can't enjoy the use of it. That kind of distinction should not ever arise in us. Right. Whenever it does arise, it has to do with envy or covetousness or greed. Right. Verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not have what? What you might need. Because you do not ask. You do not ask whom? Ask God. 
If we don't ask God with the right attitude, then God won't supply. If we don't ask Him, He won't supply. And then verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You ask and do not receive. Many people do ask God. But when they ask God, they ask with wrong motives or evil motives. They ask evilly. And because they ask like that, God knows the heart. He knows the motive. He knows your intentions, whatever you're planning to do. The reason you want that item. And then he doesn't supply it. He doesn't supply it. He doesn't give it to you because he knows we want to spend it on our pleasures. Back to verse 1. The main issue is our pleasures. We're always seeking for the next pleasure, the next fulfillment. Without asking, does this please God? Am I doing it to please God? Am I doing it to glorify God? Is it in accordance with His Word? Is it in accordance with His will? If we ask that, that will put a curb on our desires, on our pleasures, on our lusts. It will put a curb and a halt to whatever we're trying to do. If we ask God according to His will. For verses uh, 1 to 3, a few cross-references on having the true desire and appealing to the Lord and the Lord answering based on that. The true desire, verses 1 to 3. Psalm 66, Psalm 66, 18. Psalm 66, 18, and we'll read 16 to 20. Come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell you of what He has done for my soul. I cried to Him with my mouth, and He was extolled with my tongue. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, who has not turned away my prayer, nor His loving kindness from me. Here the prophet is happy that God has answered him, and he praises God, and he understands this truth in verse 18. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If my motive is wicked, if my desire is wicked, if my pleasures are wicked pleasures, then God won't hear. He won't honor the prayer. He will not answer the prayer. Proverbs 28, Proverbs 28, verse 9. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 9. He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Which means that whatever we pray must be in accordance 
with His will. And where will we find His will? In the law of God, in the Word of God. If it is in accordance with the law of God, He'll hear us. He'll hear our prayers, our requests. Proverbs 15, 8. 15, 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is His delight. The prayer of the upright is His delight, but not the sacrifice of the wicked. That is an abomination. And the sacrifice of the wicked may be any sacrifice or animal sacrifice, but in this proverb, it is used synonymously with prayer. So the wicked think that they are in their prayers offering a sacrifice to God, saying and doing something pleasing to God, but they have not evaluated that prayer and the motives of that prayer based on the Word of God. And because of that, it's an abomination. Likely that's what he means there in 15.8. Also 21, Proverbs 21.27. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? That means that the intention of the heart, we must examine that to ensure that whatever we are asking is in accordance with the goodwill of God. 1 John, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, 19 to 24. 1 John 3, 19. We shall know by this that we are of the truth and shall assure our heart before Him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. And the one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him. And we know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. 19 and 20, He's talking about our conscience. And when our conscience confirms to us or condemns us, 19 to 21, confirms or condemns, then we'll know about our motives. And often, it's not very difficult to just look inside, look at our heart, look at our reason, and discern, and either we'll be guilty, feel guilty, about what we want, what we want to do, or what we want to ask God, or we won't feel guilty. And he says that if our heart does not condemn us, beloved, we have confidence before God. There he's getting at the motives or the intention. If we have confidence that we are asking things in accordance with His holy word, then, he says, whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. We're living according to His commandments and according to His good pleasure. When we live that way, we can have confidence in what we ask. 
then the proof that we are living this way is in verses 23 to 24. We believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. We love each other. We keep His commandments. And we live according to the Spirit within us, the Holy Spirit. Now, when He says in verse 22, whatever, we're going to see this again. Whatever. In 1 John 5, 14 and 15. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. And this is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from Him. Here He says also, confidence. Why? Because our conscience doesn't prick us because of our evil intentions. Confidence. We ask anything. And in 15, whatever we ask, we know we have those requests. He hears us and he answers us accordingly. These verses are often distorted. Anything and whatever. The scripture does not mean that we can ask for health and wealth. We can ask for health and wealth as it is taught in charismatic Pentecostal churches, in prosperity churches. It doesn't mean it that way. There is no way the Bible means it that way. In fact, James has been condemning it so far. This distinction between the rich and the poor and the love of wealth and exploitation of those who don't have anything, he's been condemning that, correct? He's been talking uh, also in chapter 127, He says to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Those who are preoccupied with wealth and health, they're not doing that. If they do it, they give lip service to it, but they're not doing it in the proper biblical way. And furthermore, in chapter 4, we'll see in our next, uh, next section, 13 to 17, that he condemns the pursuit of health and wealth. He condemns it. And he calls it arrogance and he calls it evil and boasting. He's not meaning that at all. Not James and not even John is meaning that. Nor does any other verse of the Bible mean it that way. James, in fact, used some similar terminology in James 1, verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. That is the kind of request we should be asking God. If we ask Him for wisdom to please Him, and if we ask for the necessities of life, these are the things in the Scripture that He will provide. He provides abundantly. He provides without any condemnation. We ask about those things, and the Lord is happy to supply. And also, the charismatic... Faith, being heresy, it's obvious, it's self-evident that it doesn't work. If, if they were to ask for $10 million tomorrow, they wouldn't get it to suddenly appear in their bank accounts. They don't get it. If they were to ask to live to be 181 years old, older than Isaac, the patriarch, if they were to live, ask, they wouldn't get that. They're going to die of their last disease. 
and maybe even prematurely, before age 70 or 80. They're going to die. Or, as the people say, the Earth is a dangerous place and we need to colonize Mars. Are they going to, can they say, next week I'm going to have a house on Mars and I'm going to be able to sustain my life on Mars? Are they going to, they can do that. In the last two years, did they uh, save all the people, the millions of people who have died because of the uh, so-called vaccinations? Have they saved anybody? No. They're a bunch of liars. It doesn't match reality and it does not match Scripture. They are perverting and distorting Scripture for their wicked purposes. For what purposes? Their pleasures, as he says here in verses 1 and 3. Because of their pleasures, they're seeking evil desires with evil intentions and evil use of the goodness of God in their life. Verse 4. James 4.4. 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? We notice first that he calls the church adulteresses. He says it, he calls them adulteresses. He's not meaning that this in the physical way, though there may be some doing that. He's talking about spiritual adultery because the church is the bride of Christ. And he means it that way. Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 32. Throughout this chapter and elsewhere in the prophets, for that matter, the people are often described as a wife, the bride or the wife. He says in Ezekiel 16.32, You adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Jesus used this terminology, Matthew 12. Matthew 12 and verse 39. Matthew 12.39. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet, and the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, in case one is going to say, well, the prophet Ezekiel, he only said Israel was like that. And even Jesus is talking about the scribes and the Pharisees, but he's not talking about the church. He would never call the church adulterous. Well, 2 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 11, 2-4. But I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully." You put up or, or tolerate, you bear with it beautifully, sarcastically speaking, that they put up with false teachers who cause the virgin bride of Christ to be adulterated. He's talking about it in a spiritual way because he said, another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. That's the meaning that James has. We should also notice 
that James is forthright. He's plain spoken. He's not uh, speaking in circuitous ways. He's not trying to conceal his motives, his intentions. He'll just say it as it is. Right? Look at chapter 2, verse 20, where he uses a name and says it as it is. Chapter 2, 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? He says, you foolish fellow, faith without works is useless. In chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He calls them, those in the local church, you sinners, you double-minded. Because there's always some who waver, who teeter and totter between faith and doubt, faith and doubt. They don't have stable and true faith. So he's calling them to repent and be consistent. He did it, we should do it as well. And in fact, actually, pastors are supposed to do this, as it says in Titus. Titus chapter 1. Pastors are supposed to do this, and we ought to emulate the pastors who do so. Titus 1.10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced, because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this cause, reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith. He says to Titus, a young pastor, reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith. So what is severe reproof? James is one example of it. Christ was another. Matthew 12, 39, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. Say it like it is. You're, we're not helping people when we don't do so. Also, chapter 4, verse 4 of James. There are only two choices. There are only two paths. There are only the way of God that we love or the way of God that we hate. God is either our friend or God is our enemy. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We are either friends or we are enemies. There is no middle ground. There is no gray area. Many people pursue the reading and study of the Bible, they pursue the Christian life as though everything is cloudy and muddy. Everything is gray. Or they'll say some things are clear and other things are unclear. Some things are gray and other things are black and white. However, their attention, their focus is always on the gray, not the black and white, even if they declare it, which means they're practicing deception when actually there's only one way and that's the way of God. We are either a friend of God or enemy of God. 
Matthew 6, Matthew 6, 24. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. We can't have two masters. Right. Either the world is our master or God is our master. If the world is our master, we are enemies of God. Right. We have hostility toward God. Even if we won't admit it, and most of the time people don't admit it, they'll never say, I hate God. God is my enemy. They'll never say that, or I am an enemy of God. They won't say that, but the way they believe and the way they behave makes them an enemy of God, even if they won't declare it honestly. And if they won't declare it honestly, you know they're lying. And if they're lying, they belong to the devil. They are enemies of God. Only one master that we must hold to and we must love. John 15. John 15, 18. John 15, 18 to 21. 15, 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you, are, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. The world loves its own, but hates God. Right. If we are in the camp of the world, even one foot, one foot in the world, one foot in the church, we are actually in the world. That's the wobbly kind of man who has one foot in the world and one foot in the church. He actually is a hater of God. He's a hater of God. And this should not be a surprise to us. Are we not slaves? Are we not slaves of Christ? Yep. Yes. Romans six fifteen to 23. We are slaves of Christ. Slaves of righteousness enslaved to God. It says there, Romans six fifteen to 23. And being slaves of Christ, they persecuted the master, our master. They're going to persecute us. Yep. The moment we take our feet out of the world and into the kingdom of God, they're going to hate us, persecute us. Why? John 7, 7 says why. John 7, 7. This is the Lord to his brothers at the time that they didn't believe. John 7, 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. That's the reason. Everybody will be your friend, your buddy, your brother, your best friend. Everybody will be like that until you testify of the evil deeds. And then when you do that, suddenly their hatred is going to rise up against you. 
Either you're on God's side or their side. If we speak the truth, then that's when the truth of the relationship comes to the surface. We have to understand this, that we cannot play both sides. We have to be on one side or the other. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, 14 to 18. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. I will dwell in them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. It's clear what the scripture teaches. But we have to also understand that when churches, Christian organizations, whatever they might be, when they deviate from what the Bible says, then they are preoccupied, they are obsessed with attracting men based on human whims, human whimsical knowledge. They are doing it based on that and the methods that flow out of that. And then they will try to attract people to the church or to the organization with the wrong motives and wrong methods. Wrong motives and wrong methods. And what they will do is they will dabble in the world. After all, we have to have a bridge. We have to have a way to get to know them. We have to, this is what they say. They would never come to church if you didn't do that. That's what they say. You have to do it that way. You have to hook them. You have to make it interesting to them. Make it appealing to them. But not what the Bible says. The Bible says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. Faith does not come from good programs. Faith does not come from friendships. Faith does not come from hobbies. Faith does not come from music or decorations or anything else. That's not how faith arises. True faith comes from the Word, the Word of Christ. Only that. James 4, 5. 4, 5. Should this be a surprise to us? No. He says it in verse 5. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. The first part of the verse is straightforward. The second part is a bit difficult because of the translations. Let's go to the easier part. That's the first part of the verse. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? 
Always, whenever the Bible is asking a question, you have to look at it as a way that the Bible is prodding us and even humbling us on something that we should already know. Right. We should already know, so why is it that we are hesitating? Why is it that we are ignorant? Why is it that we're not acting on what we know? That's what the questions should do. The questions are not there for just an intellectual, uh, rhetorical way of just presenting something. That's not the reason for the questions. The questions are there to humble us. We should know this. We should know this. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? What's he mean here? Do you think that the Bible is in print? Do you think the Bible is written for a vain purpose? That there's no purpose? There's nothing useful that it was written just to be written in some mechanical way and then pushed to the corner and kept on a shelf. You think that was the reason it was written? No. It's obvious. Things are written so that we can later read them. Correct? They are written. Even human books are that way. But especially the divine book, the Bible, is this way. Because we're getting a message sent from heaven. So then, if it is God who speaks and speaks in his word, we shouldn't think that God was just trying to spend some time because he had nothing else to do. So he just wanted to communicate and say some things that might arouse our curiosity, but they have no real purpose or meaning or value to our life. It's not that way. It's not to no purpose or in vain. Numbers 23. Numbers 23, 19. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, Amen. nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? God's not a liar or a repenter like men are. He says, and then he'll do it. He has spoken, and he'll make it good. He's going to fulfill whatever he has spoken. If that's true, shouldn't we know what he has said? Shouldn't we know what he has spoken? Because when it comes to fruition, we need to make sure we're on the right side, such as the day of judgment. We have to make sure we're on the right side and going to heaven. Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29. 29. We cite a few of these Old Testament passages first because... He's saying, do you think the Scripture speaks to no purpose? And what Scripture does he have in mind? At least primarily speaking, the Old Testament. Why was the Old Testament written? Not to be ignored even after the coming of Christ. Right. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe 
all the words of this law. Whatever is secret, concealed, unrevealed, God has kept it for his own knowledge. But whatever is revealed is revealed in his word. And what's the purpose? He says, they belong to us and to our sons forever. That means permanently that we may observe all the words of this law. They are there to be observed, to be obeyed. Remember, James said, don't be hearers of the word and not doers because they delude themselves. Chapter 1, 19 to 27 of James. Psalm 78. Psalm 78, 5 to 8. Psalm 78, 5 to 8. 78, verse 5. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart, and whose spirit was not faithful to God. These passages show the Old Testament knows the purpose of God speaking, the purpose of God writing through his servants, the prophets, for upcoming generations. And the apostle, he emphasizes this as well, the Apostle Paul. Romans 15, verse 4, he says, Romans 15, 4, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Whatever was written in earlier times for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. 1 Corinthians 11, 6, 11, 6. Now, these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. Whatever happened in the Old Testament happened as examples for us, but also written. 10, 11, 10, 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Quite clear. If it's in the Bible, it should not be ignored. It must be known, it must be believed, and then it must be obeyed. We cannot and should not be ignorant of the Bible. And what is it that he wants us to know in James 4, verse 5? James 4, 5. I read from the NASB, and I have the 1975 edition. He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. The 95 edition is the same. In this edition, we have God who is jealously desiring It is God who is jealously desiring the Spirit. And the uppercase S of Spirit shows that the translators believe this is the Holy Spirit. 
God jealously desires the Holy Spirit, which He has made to dwell in us. He <coughs> desires the work of that, the Holy Spirit that God has caused or made to dwell in us. The work of the Holy Spirit to overcome our quarrels and conflicts, to overcome our evil motives, to overcome our lusts and pleasures, to overcome our desire to have one foot in the world. This would be the interpretation according to the NASB translation. God, jealously desiring His Holy Spirit in us to sanctify us, to beat down the flesh. The Holy Spirit against our flesh. That would be one interpretation. Another interpretation comes from the KJV. This would be the other major alternative interpretation. The KJV, King James Version or King James Bible, authorized version that's quite curious. Uh, these days, you know, if somebody puts his name on a Bible, you have to wonder what's the man about, right? But in the time of the King James and even the most conservative and orthodox and fundamentalistic Christians who adhere to the KJV, they have no qualms with King James putting his name on the Bible. Why is that? And he was a compromiser, by the way. He was a compromiser. Yes, he was raised... Presbyterian in Scotland, but um, his mother was Catholic and he tried to bring peace in the first kingdom in Great Britain. He's the first king of Great Britain, Scotland, England together. And he tried to bring peace between the warring factions among Catholics and Reformed Protestants. And his way of doing it was the King James Version. Because the reformers, the English reformers, they were using the Geneva Bible, which was a translation of the ardent reformers who despised Catholicism. They were using it and they had uh, Bible study notes on various passages, like a study Bible, and it condemned whatever false doctrine, and often it would talk about Catholic doctrines in the study notes. And so King James didn't like that because it was bringing up animosity. He was trying to bring peace in the kingdom. So he said, we're going to have a new translation of 47 or 48 scholars, a new translation, and no notes. And with the Apocrypha, which the Catholics wanted the Apocrypha, the extra books of the Old Testament. That was the King James Version. Now today, the King James Version may or may not be published with the Apocrypha, but that I'm telling you the history. So keeping that in mind, I, I have to say that because sometimes people don't understand the history and the process and e even the accuracy of one translation above another, and they just are spouting ignorance, and we shouldn't be people like that. Okay, but the King James Version. Their translation is a valid understanding of the grammar, but also of the rest of Scripture. So it's not a bad meaning or translation. I'm just explaining that your Bible may be that way, 
And if it is that way, we can understand it, and it has a valid place in biblical theology. And this is what it is. Do ye think that the Scripture saith in vain? The Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. The first part is clear. The second part, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. This would be taking, and they do take it this way, because the spirit, the S of spirit is lowercase, which means they take it to be the human spirit, not the Holy Spirit. And our spirit that dwells within us lusteth to envy which would also fit this context, the context that he's already explained in verses 1 to 4. Because we have lust and we envy and we fight and quarrel, bicker with each other about things, that that is what is within us and is a persistent sin that we have to overcome. In other words, this rendering would be a reminder that we have the flesh within us constantly at war against God. And that's valid. That's a valid way to look at it. And if, and since James is speaking of the Scripture, where then in the Old Testament, if this is the case, where then in the Old Testament does God tell us about our flesh and its war or its lusts, envying and fighting and quarreling, causing problems from within and then without. We have Genesis 4. Genesis 4, verse 7. 4-7. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. But you must master it. Sin's desire is for you, that is, sin is lusting after you, has an evil desire to control you as a wicked master, but you must master sin. You must be the master over sin. Genesis 6, verse 5, 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Great wickedness, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 8, 21. 8, 21. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Proverbs 21, 10. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 10. The soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. This actually does also match. It matches the context of James. The soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. That's why 
when you have the evil desire, you fight and quarrel with your neighbor. The neighbor doesn't have favor in your eyes, has disfavor instead, and then you have a conflict. Galatians. Galatians 5, 16 to 18. Galatians 5, 16. This warfare between our spirit and the Holy Spirit. 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. This is the warfare which started in the Old Testament, explained as we saw, and it continues. If the KJV is correct in what they understand this to mean, it also has a place in Scripture. Okay, those are the two main interpretations. There are a few a little differences here or there in other translations, but these are the two main. Here, we'll take it to mean that God has a jealous desire for the Holy Spirit that He has caused to dwell in us to overcome us. That's the way we're going to take it. And if that is the case, does it have a basis in the Old Testament also? Yes, yes it does. Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32, 15. 32, 15. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field is considered as a forest. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us. When the Spirit is poured out upon us, we are compared to a wilderness and a fertile field, a barren place, and a fruitful place. And the Spirit will produce that kind of fruit of the Spirit within us. Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, verse 3. 44, 3. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Verse 4, and they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This is also the comparison of the Spirit being poured out upon us and producing fruit in us. Isaiah 59, 21. Isaiah 59, 21. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My Spirit who is upon you, And my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. That is the Spirit and the Word in us and upon us in order for us to be true participants in God's everlasting covenant, covenant of peace or covenant of grace. James 5, uh, sorry, James 4, James chapter 4, verse 6. 6, 
to 10. Verses 6 to 10. Essentially, we must practice humility. Humility. Repentance coupled with humility. That's in verses 6 to 10. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Firstly, we have a promise in verse 6. He gives a greater grace. We are recipients of some grace, but he will give greater grace. And that's what we need. We need the greater grace of the spirit of grace to overcome the flesh. The greater grace of the spirit of grace to overcome the flesh. Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah 54, 7 and 8. Isaiah 54, 7. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Whatever loving kindness and grace, compassion we receive is much more than whatever punishment we have received or whatever punishment we deserve. He gives greater grace to not only neutralize the evil and the condemnation, the guilt of our sins, but he increases it to such an extent that it smothers it and it's like it never happened. And of course, one day, God will have us in his presence with fullness of joy. Matthew 13, 12. Matthew 13, verse 12. For whoever has, to him shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. We who have, and we have it only by the grace of God, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What you have that you did not receive, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Whatever we have is by the grace of God, and he's speaking here of salvation. And once we do have it, God increases to us, so that we have an abundance. But to the reprobate who have this temporary experience of the grace of God, whatever they do have will be taken away from them, completely taken away, eventually, on the day of judgment. If there is greater grace, then we should appeal to God for it. No doubt. We should ask Him for it. Luke 11 Luke 11, 13. Luke 11 and verse 13. 
If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Amen. Well, we who pray to the Father, we already have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And here is a promise that we will have more of the Holy Spirit and His power dwelling in us to sanctify us and purify us, to enable us to do the will of God. That's why He said, walk by the Spirit, Galatians 5, 16. Or in Ephesians 5, 16 to 21, He says to keep being filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. When we are being filled with the Spirit, He is helping and enabling us by His grace to overcome sin. And what is the main sin in verses 6 to 10 that He's addressing? He's addressing pride. Pride. He says so in verse 6. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He is opposed to the proud. And that's why the proud must submit to God. The proud must resist the devil. The proud must draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. The proud are called here to cleanse your hands, you sinners. (laughs) Cleanse your hands, you sinners. The proud are told, purify your hearts, you double-minded. The proud are told, be miserable and mourn and weep. Usually those are not good things to do. But here they are good. Because these are the actions of the truly repentant. Amen. And the truly repentant are the humble. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. And by that, he's talking about your superficial laughter and joy. You ought to get rid of it. You're pretending. And you don't have humility. Verse 10, a summary. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. In verse 6, he is quoting from one of these two references or even from both. Psalm 138, verse 6. Psalm 138, verse 6. For though the Lord is exalted, yet He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. Proverbs 3, 34. Proverbs 3, 34. Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. He scoffs at the scoffers, gives grace to the afflicted. Proverbs 3, 34. Submitting to God. Verse 7. Peter has said similarly in 1 Peter 5, verse 6. 1 Peter 5, Verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. And also verse 7. Casting all your anxiety upon Him, because He cares for you. 
Submission to God. What does submission to God mean? Obedience to God. Doing His will. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices <laughs> as in obeying the voice of the Lord? For behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. 1 Samuel 15, 22 to 23. Notice how he says obedience or obeying to obey and uses that as a synonym or antonym of rebellion and insubordination. And submission is also one of those synonyms. Lack of submission would be rebellion. Submission would be obedience. Obedience to the will of God. Verse 7 also says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Amen. Resistance. Well, what is resistance to the devil? Resistance to the devil is acting in faith. If we are acting in faith, and faith based on the word of faith, the Bible, right. then we are going to resist the devil and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. 1 John 5, verse 4. Yes, our faith. Ephesians 6, Ephesians 6, 10. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm. Firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. 19, also for Paul. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So having the full armor of God, the word of God, the shield of faith, the truth, the breastplate of righteousness, having all of these... We are equipped to resist the devil right. and including prayer. Prayer. Why do we need prayer? He says there, prayer for one another and prayer for even himself. Why? That he may speak it boldly. Speak the truth boldly. When we don't speak the truth boldly, we're giving the devil an opportunity to infiltrate and to make us compromise. That's why we have to be 
courageous and bold to speak forth. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Drawing near to God is a common expression found in the Old Testament. To draw near to God. Let's look at just one example. And that is in the, the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is actually very indebted to Moses. All the prophets are, but Jeremiah, he has a proclivity to cite the book of Deuteronomy. And this is what he's doing here. Jeremiah is very fond of the book of Jer uh, Deuteronomy, and this is what he is citing here. Jeremiah 29, 12 to 14. 29, 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Here, the prophet Jeremiah, he is citing passages from Deuteronomy, the, uh, the book of Moses, such as Deuteronomy 4.29, 31 to 3, 39 and 10. Deuteronomy 4, 29, 31 to 3, and 30 verses 9 and 10. And here, call on me, come and pray, and I will listen to you. That sequence, search for him, I will be found by you, is similar to what James says in James 4, 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is incumbent upon everybody. But not everyone has the ability to carry it out. Right. Whenever Moses, Jeremiah, James, anybody is calling on the hearers to do the will of God, it never assumes that every hearer has the capacity to do that will. It's explaining to the hearers what is necessary, but it's not necessarily explaining in a given verse or a given paragraph what is entailed to have that ability. Other passages will explain that. And then some passages will explain both. Some will explain both. You understand the point? Such as, remember I said that Deuteronomy 31 to 3 taught what Jeremiah has just said in Jeremiah 29. But let's go back a few verses to chapter 29. Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29. And this clarification is necessary because of free will theology. No doubt. Free will Arminian theology, and that theology is idolatry, that theology takes these passages out of context without understanding the previous verses, the subsequent verses. They take these verses out of context. Remember, we said Deuteronomy. So let's look at Deuteronomy 29, verse 4. Yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. What's... Moses preaching in the whole book. 
<laughs> he's charging them to love the Lord. Yeah. Right? He's charging them to love their neighbor. He's charging them to choose the way of life. There's the way of life and the way of death. He's charging them to receive the blessing instead of the cursing. Right? He's doing that throughout the whole book. This is his final message to them. He's doing it. But he also tells them at the same time, yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. Right. He hasn't given you the ability to this day. Right. And he means the vast majority of them. He right. doesn't mean Joshua. He doesn't mean Caleb in their midst. He's talking about the vast majority of them. God has not given them a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. Right. Which means that that must precede the ability of the hearer to draw near to God in true humility and repentance. Right. It has to be that way. Okay, look at chapter 30. 30 verses 1 to 3. 31 to 3. This will sound similar to what we read in Jeremiah. 30 verse 1. So it shall come about when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Right. Let's also go down to verses 9 and 10, which we mentioned. 30 verse 9. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body, and in the offspring of your cattle, and in the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Okay, here too it sounds like. You, if you do this, then the Lord will bless you. So what's the prerequisite? You must do it. But he didn't say in the verses we just read how they will have the ability to do it. But there's a verse right in the middle of this passage, verse 6, 30, verse 6, 30, verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart Amen. and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. There's the answer. When the Lord circumcises the heart, then the heart loves the Lord with all of our heart and all of our soul. That's the sequence right there. Deuteronomy 29.4, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, both are in the middle of many, many exhortations to draw near to God and He will draw near to you. But the explanation in terms of capability is given in those other two verses. We have to understand that it's also throughout the New Testament. This is the same. And James is not denying this truth either. Okay. Then, James 4, verses 8 and following. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Why is it? Because according to Psalm 24, 4, we must have clean hands and a, and a pure heart. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. Psalm 24, 4, where the prophet teaches us we must have both to approach the Lord. And he's speaking of 
our hands and hearts being uh, sources or channels or instruments, agents of sin. We have to get rid of them, cleanse and purify them. Isaiah chapter 1, 15. Isaiah 1, 15 to 17. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of bloodshed. Wash your hands, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. In a nutshell, Isaiah 1, 15 to 17 sounds like the book of James, does it not? From chapter 1, about visiting orphans and widows in their distress. And here, about making sure we have clean hands, washing ourselves, being cleansed. And if we come to God with filthy fingers, He's not going to listen to our prayers. Isn't that what James said in chapter 4? Same thing. Verses 9 and 10. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning. Mourning should come before mourning. That is, we must mourn in terms of weeping and sorrow over sin before we can have the light of the mourning of the knowledge of God and the salvation of God. That's the sequence. That one has to happen before the other. And for the sake of brevity, we'll go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Matthew 5, 4, which teaches the same. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. He doesn't mean mourning over woeful circumstances. He's talking about mourning over sin. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 2. We'll read 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. Mourning over sin is here too. 5, 1, or the lack thereof. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. Mourn instead over the wickedness in the midst of the church and then repent of it and handle it properly. That's true mourning. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 8 to 10. A contrast between true mourning and false mourning. 7 8 of 2 Corinthians. For though I cause you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. When there is true sorrow or true mourning, true grief, 
true misery over sin, and it leads to true repentance, that's what pleases God. It results in salvation. And there's true humility. There's a true way and there's a false way. May we have the true way because he says, then the Lord will exalt us. First, we must be humbled before our exaltation. Humility now, exaltation later. As it was with the Lord Jesus, he was first humbled, he suffered now, he died on the cross. He had to die before he rose from the dead, which is a part of the the exaltation of Christ. Death first, humility first, uh, exaltation second. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.